family. It's good, it's good to see you this morning. For those of you visiting, uh, I, want, I want to let you know that we are really glad to have you with us, so thank you for being here. Uh, just to bring you up to where we're at for the last two weeks, we've been asking and answering this simple question, just who are we? Who are we as a church? And what we've been learning and rehearsing together is this, we are a family of servant missionaries learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality. Jesus has sent us here as disciples who make disciples. That's who we are. So we're three weeks into this new series entitled Seven Letters, and in this series, our goal is to learn about who God has made us to be as his church and how he calls us to live. But it doesn't stop there. Being a Christian means we, we embrace those things and we submit to them and we press into what we're learning. We're not just here to accumulate or acquire knowledge. Uh, many of us did grow up in circles of Christianity where knowledge was always equated with maturity as a one-for-one. One. Um, that's just not true. And so we're not here just to learn. We're here to learn, to receive, but then to press into what we learn. So here's what we've been learning. In week one, we learned that the church is God's sent family of servant missionaries for whom safety is found in a sovereign king, not in safe cities or places. And then last week, we learned this. Jesus commends the church, which works hard at right doctrine and patient endurance, but in the absence of love, that really good church is as good as dead. And then this week, here's what we'll see. Jesus commends his family when facing extreme pressure to conform to the culture. They fearlessly and faithfully live out their gospel identity and purpose. That's what we'll learn in the portion of John's letter that we'll explore today. And This piece of the letter is addressed specifically to God's gathered family in the city of Smyrna, the church in Smyrna. But remember, it's one long letter with seven mini letters kind of within it. It's one long letter with seven sections, each section addressed to a different church. But within the letter, Jesus says, this is for all of you. This is So every church would read every letter uh, that was addressed to other churches. And they were told by Jesus, I want you to submit to whatever you read in every one of these letters. So it's for us today. So let's read that portion of the letter. It's found in Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse eight and going down to verse 11. I'll read that out loud if you'd follow along with me. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last, the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are actually synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving us these words and preserving them down through the years. Uh, we are your people. We are your family. We don't want to just know about you. We don't want to just know about the Bible. We actually want you through your spirit and by your grace to continue transforming our lives, uh, 
rescuing us from our rebel tendencies and recreating us in your image, the image that we were created to bear to begin with. We can't do this on your own. We need all of your help. So Jesus, I pray that through your spirit this morning, you would awaken dead hearts, that you would give the gift of faith to those who have yet to believe. For those who have believed, Father, you, you know our faith is so weak. It's so weak. So I pray that you would strengthen our faith as we look to Jesus. And I pray that you would do these things for us, for your fame and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so our big idea today, Jesus commends his family when facing extreme pressure to conform to the culture, they fearlessly and faithfully live out their gospel identity and purpose. So we'll kind of hang our thoughts on three supporting ideas uh, this week. Just like last week, we'll start here. Jesus actually does commend his family. This is life-giving for us. So that's where we'll start. Jesus commends his family. And then we'll see that the church in Smyrna was facing just absolutely extreme pressure to conform to the culture. We'll see that. And then finally, we'll see Jesus, what he does for them is he doesn't tell them to run and he doesn't tell them to fight. He tells them, he calls his family to practice fearless faith in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. So let's begin with Jesus commending his family. Uh, if you were here last week, you probably noticed that Jesus introduces himself differently to the church in Smyrna than he did to the church in Ephesus. And I know we're only two letters deep into the seven, but as we progress, we'll actually see that Jesus introduces himself differently to each of the seven different churches. It's not coincidental. It's not a mistake. It was planned. It was intentional. And it was based on the needs of each church. Now, the need for a given church may be for commendation to, to tell, hey, you're doing a really good job with this. Uh, the need may be for um, encouragement. Hey, I know you're having a hard time. Keep pressing on. The need may have been for correction. We'll see that. Uh, maybe the need is for all three, and probably at most seasons of life, we do need all three of those things going on. In any case, Jesus introduces himself in a way which gives even greater weight to his commendation or his correction or his encouragement. Uh, we do this all the time. Um, so for me as a father, I do, I do this as a dad. When my sons need to be corrected, I remind them, hey, Hey, Johnny, like, I'm your father. Like, God has given me some very important things to do in your life, so I need you to listen to me as your father right now. Um, thankfully, those conversations are kind of spread out, right? Um, so more often, my kids need to be encouraged or comforted. And so I don't look them in the eye and say, I'm, I'm your father, and I'm gonna encourage you right now. Like, get happy. Like, stop being sad. Um, I say, man, I'm your daddy. I love you. Come here, let me, let me hold you. And this is what Jesus is doing with these letters. It's, he's introducing himself with a different tone and a different title based on the needs of the family at the time. And so God's family in Smyrna is suffering. They are experiencing extreme pressure, even persecution, because they were learning to live out their gospel identity and they were learning to live out God's purposes for them as a family um, in a culture that was in just deep conflict with the gospel. And so they're suffering for this. So what do they need in their suffering? They need encouragement. They need hope. They need restored confidence. They need a reminder that Jesus, he's got them, like he's got them, and that they'll be okay. And so that's why Jesus introduces himself the way that he does for their comfort, for their encouragement, and for their confidence. And we see him use two different titles here in verse 8. 
where we read the words of, and then here are two titles for Jesus, the words of the first and the last, there's the first title, and the second one is uh, the words of the one who died and came to life. So let's, let's look at those, the first and the last. This title occurs three times in, in all of Revelation, and every, every time it's referring specifically of Jesus and only Jesus. So this is his, his title. This is who he is. He is the first and the last. Now, the same title is used in the Old Testament by God himself, uh, by God the Father himself, and it's, it's given to us as one of his divine names. So um, God's people would hear this and be like, all right, that's one of my father's names. This is, this is God speaking. Here's an example in Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Uh, encouragement to, the, to God's family in Smyrna? You bet. What's the reminder here then? Jesus is using the same title that was used by the Father all through the Old Testament. This is Jesus saying, reminding his family, I'm God. And I am God on your behalf is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I see you in your suffering. I know, I care, I am present with you. You are not alone in your suffering. God, through Christ himself, is present with you. This title has always been meant to encourage God's family. Here's another example, Isaiah 48, verse 12, uh, where God says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I call. That's, that's, that's family talk. Like, you're my family. Now listen to me, kids. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Now listen to what the first and the last has done. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. And now just listen to this. Let, let this sit in your mind. When I call to them, when I call out to the earth and the heavens, they stand forth together. So Jesus is reminding his family, this is who I am. I am God. I am sovereign over all of creation. When I call out to the earth and when I call out to the heavens, they stand at the position of attention and they listen to me and they do exactly what I say. I'm sovereign over creation, and in the same way that I'm sovereign over creation, I am sovereign over all of history. So while things may seem out of control to you, and they are, we don't like that idea, but it's one that we need to come, we really need to come to grips with. We are not in control. And so while things in your life seem out of control to you, and most of those things are actually out of your control, Jesus is looking at us and saying, they are not out of control to me. I hold your past, I hold your present, and I hold your future in my hands. And so nothing and no one can take you away from me, not even your death. This title also stands as a reminder that Jesus is eternal. Uh, when he says that he's the first and the last, we're learning that there is nothing before him and there is nothing after him. Jesus has no beginning um, and he has no end. And this is deeply encouraging for those facing persecution, especially death. This is a comforting reality when you face death. What does it mean for us? It means that after I die, Jesus still is and I will be vindicated. I will know life again. Vindication for you likely will not happen in this lifetime. It's not God's promise to you. But after you die, Jesus still is, and you will live again if you have uh, believed in him as your rescuing king. You will be vindicated. You will know life. And Jesus also introduces himself as the one who died and came to life. 
And we know this from the Gospels. Jesus had suffered and Jesus had died, but in dying, he conquered death. He rose again three days later, and he lives. And Christians in Smyrna would suffer like Jesus. Many of them would even die like Jesus. But Jesus had already conquered death on their behalf. And the good news of the gospel says that if we have been united with Jesus by faith in a death like his, then we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. We will live again like Jesus. And so what does this mean on the ground for the Christians who are in Smyrna, like right now facing persecution? It means the Roman government could kill the Christians in Smyrna, but they could not take their lives. Jesus owned their lives. Is that encouraging? For them, of course it is. In fact, as I was reading over that this week, and I I think I was actually talking to a friend about epic movies that we're looking forward to watching with our sons later in life. And for me, one of those that I encountered very early on was Braveheart. Now read the book. It's called Scottish Chiefs, and it's like the true story, and then go watch the movie. Um, but in the movie, that epic line where William, William Wallace calls out to his men, and, and what does he say? He says, they may take our lives, but... There you go. You all know it. They can't take our freedom. Guys, as a follower of Jesus, in persecution, your body very well may be killed, but your life can never be touched because it is hidden in Christ by faith. He owns it. Jesus owns your life. It's untouchable. And he holds it with an unbreakable, unbreakable grip. Remember being, being a kid and trying to pry something out of your grandparent, your grandfather's hand, um, your uncle's hand, and he would just wrap his hand around a quarter or whatever it is that you wanted? As a four, five, six-year-old, there was no way on this earth you were prying his hand open and getting that. You can't do it. Because Jesus has that kind of a grip on your life. If you have repented of your rebellion and believed in him as your rescuing king, he holds your life with an unbreakable grip. Now look at the first words of verse 9. Jesus says to his family, I know your tribulation. That is a personal statement from our sovereign king who rules the universe with his voice. He says to his children in a gentle way, look, I, I know that you're suffering and I care that you are suffering. I am with you. I've got you. I will never forget you. I will never let you go. See, even the rickroll has deep gospel roots. It's there. Um, I will never lose you. No one can take you away. You are mine. I love you. And I'm, that's not just me as a pastor making those words up to make you feel better about life. Like Jesus has said this. In fact, here it is in the Old Testament, Isaiah 43 Uh, Verse one in the second half, he simply says this, fear not family, for I have redeemed you. I've rescued you. I've, I've paid the price for your rescue. You're mine now. I have called you by name. Let that be an encouragement to you. And then what does he say? Say, I have called you by name. You are mine. You're mine. You are mine, Jesus says. And then Jesus cares enough about his people to write this down as a letter. Like, do you ever stop and think about the Bible this way? Like, it's, it's much, much more than a book. This was an actual letter received by churches in real cities, in real history, and it's been passed on to us. So God, the creator of the universe, the one who's created you and rescued you, has written to us a letter. It's for us. And this is good news for us because our hearts forget every day of the week. We need reminders every day of the week, all the time. 
all the time that uh, we don't need to live in fear because he has redeemed us, he has called us by name, and he calls us his own. Uh, the young church family in Smyrna needed this, this reminder big time because uh, here's our second big idea. The church in Smyrna was facing extreme, extreme pressure to conform to the culture. And so Jesus says to them in verse 9, family, I know your tribulation. He uses the word tribulation. They were facing tribulation. Now, the word for tribulation, when used literally, means to press hard against someone. Uh, I took, took my youth group to an August Burns Red uh, concert, and I use the word concert lightly in, uh, in high school. And um, if you're in the center, that's just constant tribulation. Uh, not necessarily bad tribulation, it's just a mass of bodies pressing on you the entire time. It's an unstoppable uh, pressure, an unstoppable force that one person cannot withstand. Uh, that's tribulation uh, to press against. Um, have you ever seen juice pressed from apples in a cider mill? No. Okay, thank you. So plan your next vacation to Vermont. I will give you a pin where not only can you see that happen, you can tour Ben and Jerry's first and get free ice cream. Um, and then you can go see apples pressed. But they pile all these apples in and they use hydraulics and they just very slowly squeeze the juice out of these apples. And you know what? The strongest of apples is unable to withstand the pre it, 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 They are all crushed beyond recognition. That's what tribulation means. Maybe you haven't seen that, but certainly you've, uh, you've squeezed grapes between your fingers and watched them explode, right? I know we don't let our kids do that anymore. It's unsafe. You have to quarter grapes before you feed your kids. I got it. I got it. But just once, let them live. Give them a whole grape and let them just squeeze it, okay? Like that's tribulation. It's, it's squeezed and it cannot, it cannot withstand the pressure. So we're talking about unsustainable pressure. We need to get that into our minds. Like when we see the word tribulation in the Bible... It shouldn't be taken lightly. We are talking about a, an external pressure that you as a person will not be able to, 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 to stand up against. You can't sustain that kind of pressure. We need to think of tribulation that way. So the Christians in Smyrna faced extraordinary pressure to go along with the culture, to get along with the culture. This is the pressure they're facing. And that's an impossibility if you are serious about learning to live in your gospel identity and live out your gospel purpose. If you want to be a nominal Christian and kind of be Christian in name only, um, it's doable. Uh, our, our, our own country has a, a long and robust history of being a, quote, Christian nation. Um, and that's what it is. It's a history of being a Christian in, in name only. Um, but if you are serious about learning to live in your gospel identity and to live out your gospel purpose, uh, we, will, we will face this kind of pressure. And so they faced extraordinary pressure to renounce loyalty to Jesus. If they rolled with Jesus, if they pressed into gospel identity and purpose, they could expect unsustainable pressure to not only exist, but to escalate into full-blown persecution and even death. Now, why? Well, there are two big reasons. Uh, one of them has to do with the pluralistic um, environment that they lived in. And the other one just simply had to do with the professional culture of Smyrna, which has a whole lot in common with your own professional culture. But let's look at their pluralist, pluralistic culture to begin with. In pluralistic Smyrna, the exclusive claims of the gospel were offensive. And just simply put, the, the, the claims of the gospel, the exclusive claims of the gospel were offensive. So Smyrna was religiously pluralistic, even polytheistic, meaning lots of gods, like just lots of gods, lots of different um, gods to be worshiped, just like our culture today. 
Many gods and goddesses were worshipped. Even the emperor was deified and worshipped in, in, in Rome at the time. Uh, one of the emperors, a guy named Domitian, who was reigning when this letter was written, so he reigned from 81 to 96, he demanded emperor worship, but even when he demanded it, he still allowed the Jewish community that was scattered throughout Rome, the Roman province, um, the Roman uh, empire, to, uh, they, were, they were still given the right to practice their religion. And so for a while, Christianity was actually viewed by the government as a Jewish sect. So um, many Jews did, in fact, embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And so initially, Christians received the same protected freedom of religion uh, that the Jewish community received. But as time went by, some Jews, especially the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, found the message of Christianity to be just absolutely blasphemous and offensive. And so what they would do is they would actively denounce Christians to the Roman government. I mean, they would actually go to the government authorities point out a, a, a young church family or a community of Christians and explain why uh, the government needed to deal with them harshly. Here's an example from uh, the book of Acts. Um, well, hold, we'll get there in a minute. And so this is what they would do. Uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what Jesus says in verse nine. He says, I see the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I know that sounds harsh towards Jews, but let me just reassure you, John was not anti-Semitic. He himself was a Jew, um, as was Jesus, by the way, who's speaking these words. Uh, so he's, he's, all he's simply doing is this. Jesus is saying, look, Jews were God's special people, but these Jewish leaders were showing themselves to be Jews in name only. Their hostility against Jesus, their promised Messiah, and their hostility against Jesus' church, which actually did include many Jewish people along with non-Jews. But their hostility against Jesus and his church revealed the true conditions of their hearts now, their loyalty was not aligned with their God, but actually with Satan is what Jesus is saying. Now, the name Satan simply means adversary or slanderer. And that's why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan, a synagogue of Satan, just a whole lot of slander and adversarial content. If you look in the original Greek, you actually see that uh, the synagogue of Satan is loosely translated Twitter. Like, who knew? Who knew? Just a whole bunch of slander in a toxic place to be. Uh, not really. That's not how it's translated. But that thought came to my mind while I was reading it this week. I thought, wow, this is really incredible. And so that's why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They stood as adversaries to and slanderers against God, his gospel, his son, and his family. Here's the example I wanted to show you in Acts. This was happening in every city. Acts 17, verse 7 Here's the accusation. They, Christians, are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And, and the people and the city authorities stirred when they heard these things. Guys, when you live like there is another king, Jesus, when you live as if Jesus is the one true king, you just need to know that you are on a collision course with every single culture, not just a pluralistic culture, not just a polytheist, polytheistic culture. If you live like Jesus is the one true king, Marines, you are on a collision course with Marine Corps culture. Um, and just apply that to your service branch. I'm not gonna go through the list. Whatever culture it is that you happen to exist in, wherever Jesus has called you, if you live as if Jesus is the one true king, 
I don't care what the value statements are of your organization on paper, you are in a collision course with the true values of that culture. Now, maybe we can't relate to the Christians in Smyrna because we've never been slandered by a, quote, synagogue of Satan, right? I I would venture to guess that none of us in this room have actually experienced that kind of of situation. Maybe a handful of you, but, but, but likely not. So maybe we can't relate. Or maybe we can't relate because many of us have never really learned to live like Jesus is actually our king. Maybe that's the reason. We've learned how to live like politics is king. We've learned how to live like a president is king or a political party is king. We've learned to live like our own career is king or the next promotion is king or your service branches or your body image or your preferences or your sexual desires or your own personal happiness or just me, myself. Like I'm king. I rule my own life. Culture will be down with all of those. Because every one of those are gods of our culture. We live in a polytheistic world. Every one of those are a god of our culture. You will not have any conflict, really, to speak of if you live with any of those as your ultimate authority. But when you reorient your life around Jesus as your exclusive king, and you, you live by, you learn to live by, imperfectly, but you learn to live by his kingdom values, The earthly kingdom in which you live will be, to just use the word right out of Acts, will be disturbed. And you will increasingly feel outside pressure. So this is the first reason they're, they're facing persecution. The second is, in professional Smyrna, you had to conform to the culture to climb the ladder of success. Smyrna was an affluent city. It's stunning architecture, beautiful buildings and roads. They even had a roadway known as the Street of Gold. Just a beautiful city, well-planned, well-built. Their economy was built on imports and exports and science and medicine and fine wines. I mean, they were a white-collar city. Their nickname, no kidding, was probably self-acclaimed or self-appointed nickname too. It was first in Asia, right? So their, gover- their, their, their current governor had run on the campaign slogan of make Smyrna first again. This is Smyrna. So if you wanted to compete professionally in this city, if you wanted to climb the ladder of professional success, if you wanted to make a living in this city, you could not live like Jesus was your king. You couldn't do it. You, you, you had to live like the emperor was king. Everybody had to bow the knee and participate in worship to the emperor. You could live as if uh, the emperor was king, uh, live as if the country, the empire was your king, Um, live as if the economy was king, live as if the military was king. That's all good. That would have fit well within Roman culture. You know how amazing it is that everything has changed in 2,000 years and nothing has changed at all? That's like uh, king, country, core, and economy. Like there, there are your American values right there. Nothing's changed. But if you reorient around Jesus, since every aspect of society was connected to the worship of the emperor and other gods, and guys, every aspect of our society is connected with the worship of substitute gods in Jesus' place. So if you reorient your life around Jesus um, and not these cultural values, you, you will face this pressure. Orient your life around a different king, namely Jesus, and you will find yourself increasingly marginalized. In Smyrna, you had to conform to compete. You had to conform to climb the ladder. In your context, there is a degree to which you are expected to conform, to compete, and conform to climb the ladder. 
And so that's why Jesus in this letter actually linked. Did you notice what he did? He links their tribulation to poverty because once they stopped conforming, once they stopped conforming, they likely lost jobs. They likely were passed over for promotion. They likely lost contracts that they had bid on certain civic projects around the city. They lost the ability to sell their products in the marketplace because of their allegiance to Jesus as king and their unwillingness to worship gods of the culture, specifically the emperor. And then there's a reminder tucked in here that the gospel has a different definition for wealth. You see what Jesus says? I know you're poverty, but you are rich. Guys, security and happiness for our culture are found in money and stuff. As long as we can wrap a closed hand around my stuff and my money, and I have something to wrap my hand around, then I will have security and I will have happiness. The gospel says if you hold all of those things with an open hand so that they can leave and all you gain is Christ, you have gained everything and you are wealthy. The gospel and our culture have radically different definitions for wealth. It may be that we don't often come into conflict with our culture because we live more with the culture's definition of wealth than we do with Jesus' definition for wealth. And so when we reorient lives around Jesus and we refuse to conform, we very well may find ourselves marginalized and on the outside looking in. Now, let me just throw a third possibility in there. It's not either or. You very well may be living with Jesus as your king and not conforming to the culture and God in his mercy is keeping persecution from you. That is entirely possible as a category. So maybe three categories. One, we just fit in more with the culture than we actually do with, with Jesus' own kingdom value so we don't experience it. Or, uh, or, or it's possible we are submitting to Jesus as king and just in his mercy, he's protecting us from uh, this kind of persecution. That, that is possible. But for these two reasons, the church in Smyrna was facing just absolutely extreme pressure, and it was about to get worse. But as it got worse, here uh, is our third point. Jesus will call his family to practice fearless faith in the face of persecution, even death. Notice in verse 10, Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Rather, be faithful unto death. Well, what were they about to suffer? What were they about to suffer? Jesus says, the devil... Um, through the means of the Roman government, but the devil is, is the driving force behind this. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Uh, now, Revelation, the book of Revelation and Numbers is a funny place. So without going down that rabbit hole, um, let's just suggest that 10 days may be literal. Maybe they were going to face tribulation for exactly 10 days. But I think most scholars would, 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 would say, 10 days is probably meant to infer a short but very intense season. Not exactly 10 days, but a very just a defined season that will be short and, and very intense. And then in this season, some of these Christians would go to prison. Now, let's stop there because you're like, well, jail time. Like, okay, that's not that bad. Like, they'll still be eating and eventually they'll get their freedom. So, eh, persecution, but could, like could be worse. They'll go home to their family after a little while. Uh, but for those of you who love history, you know that Rome did not routinely imprison people simply for punishment. Like you didn't just get a jail sentence, go fill your three to five years, and then go back to society. That was not the Roman way. In Rome, you were probably in jail for just a few purposes, and here they are. You were there for political coercion, or we would call it enhanced interrogation, right? Like for torture. You would be tortured to um, dissuade you from something or persuade you to something. And then once you submitted, then you could go home. So there's the first reason. Um, the second reason would be forced labor, um, just forced labor. 
And then the third, which is probably likely here what Jesus was referring to, you would go to Roman prison pending trial for your execution. Like that's the end state of the imprisonment. You're not going to have a publicly appointed uh, defense attorney who's going to get you off with a lighter sentence. Like you are in prison because you are standing trial because you are going to be executed. So that's the tone of the letter. This prophetic word was essentially letting these Christians know that their persecution was about to escalate to the point that some of them would most likely die for their allegiance to Jesus. Now imagine... As a young, we're a young church plant. Imagine receiving, imagine showing up for church. I'm like, man, I wonder what the pastor's been working on all week for us. I can't wait to be encouraged. And he gets up here and he reads that letter. Like, wow, it's time to go to a different, different church. This is bad. Um, but that's what happened. Like, this letter would have been received and they would have read it at a public worship gathering, just like we're gathered here now. What if we receive that kind of letter? Well, what if we have received that letter and we just don't know it? In fact, if you take the entire New Testament as a letter that has been passed down to God's family, the church, from generation to generation, here are just two examples. Here's one, 2 Timothy 3.12, where the Father kindly tells us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like our Father has told us this. Acts 14.22, the apostles were strengthening the souls of the disciples And look at this word, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This kind of opposition, this kind of tribulation, this kind of persecution even historically has been more normative for followers of Jesus than it has not, than it has not been normative. It is, it is a normative experience for the follower of Jesus. And so the more, the more that we as followers of Jesus, learn to submit to Jesus as our king, and we, by faith, stop conforming to the culture, the the more we will experience this kind of opposition. Maybe not on the scale that they're experiencing in Smyrna, but this will be more normative for us. But in the very same letter in which Jesus lets them know that death is likely near, he commends them. He says, don't be afraid of anyone or anything. Now, If you're like me, you're tempted to view that pairing of ideas, this pairing right here. Hey, you're gonna suffer and probably die paired with, but don't be afraid as absurd, even laughable. Like, are you serious right now? Like you just told me that I'm probably gonna die and you're just telling me, don't be afraid of that. Like the natural response to to that announcement that you're about to die is what? A fear, fear, you're gonna be afraid. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of, anyone or anything. And until we're reminded that these words are coming from the lips of the first and the last, from the one who suffered, died, and came to life, that these words are coming from the one who conquered death and holds our lives, we will continue to view them as laughable words or absurd words. But these words come from the lips of the same Jesus who said this in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body. Notice how he says that, they kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's just Jesus telling his family, the Romans may kill your body, but they cannot touch your life. The first and the last owns your life, and it's held in an unbreakable grip, and it cannot be taken away. And so Jesus says to us in the face of tribulation, be fearless. In place of fear, be faithful unto death. Jesus says to those who are faithful to death, I promise you two rewards, the crown of life, and you won't be hurt by the second death. So Smyrna was famous for its sports. They had, they had uh, big stadiums and they had sports and the winners of all their competitions would receive a crown. Well, not really a crown, but a, a wreath. 
And so Jesus borrows that imagery. And so we should understand the crown of life, not simply, it's not a literal wreath. It's not like the martyrs died and Jesus handed them like these dying leaves that were on some twigs. The crown of life is, is actually life itself is what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus is reinforcing an important gospel theme for us. It's this, life out of death. That is the theme of the gospel. Jesus' death, his suffering death and resurrection were necessary to bring rescued rebels life. His death was necessary for life. And then in this life, the gospel says those who die to self-rule find true life in Christ's rule, death to life. And for the Christian, death is not final, death is not the end, rather life is found in death, death to life. The one who is faithful unto death is also referred to as the one who conquers here. Remember we talked about this word last week because we're tempted to see that word conquer and be like, well then the church must need to be made up of a bunch of strong people who have great willpower and they're very disciplined Christians and they conquer. So clearly the church is not for me because I may look like that on the outside but on the inside, like there's no strength there. There's no conquering. It's just weakness and, and that's not me. But that's not what the gospel has to tell us about this word. We saw this last week. God never calls us to conquer something on our own. We can't, and he knows this. And so Jesus is the conqueror in our place. And so we conquer, as followers of Jesus, we conquer fear in this case, but fill in the blank. We only conquer by faith in Jesus. Jesus says that those who conquer then simply by faith in him. What that means is you run to Jesus and you say, I know I need to conquer this thing in my life and I don't have the ability. I need your strength. I need need help. I need help. And Jesus gives us his spirit and the spirit empowers that strength within us. And Jesus said, those who conquer, those who run to me for life and help will not be hurt by the second death. And that's not a phrase that we see a lot. Like, wait, there are two deaths? Like, that sounds really bad. I thought I'd only die one time. Um, this is a common theme in Revelation, and it's probably pretty important that we ask the question, well, then what exactly is the second death? Here's an example. Just, I'll just give you one from Revelation 20, verse 14. It says this, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of, the, lake of fire. This is after Jesus' return. And here it is. It, just, it, it gives us to us point blank. This is the second death. What is the second death? the lake of fire. In verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, how do you get your name written in the book of life? Faith in Jesus, repenting of my rebellion, and by faith, believing Jesus, you are my rescuing king and I need help. Name is written in the book of life. So for those who are not written in the book of life, meaning those who have not repented of their rebellion, those who have not submitted to Jesus gladly as king, are thrown into the lake of the fire. So lake of fire. So what Jesus is saying is the second death is an eternal judgment that lasts forever. It's eternal separation from Jesus. The first death really is not that big a deal. It's the second death that should strike fear into the heart of everybody who has yet uh, to bow the knee to King Jesus. And it's the beauty of the gospel that Jesus offers us mercy. We deserve that judgment. We deserve that separation. But Jesus offers mercy to all those who will repent and believe. So faithfulness to Jesus unto death is a pretty important idea. Like That's a big idea in Revelation faithfulness unto death, the one who conquers. So what is faithfulness then? Faithfulness is loyalty to Jesus lived out in the everyday stuff of life. That's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is loyalty to Jesus lived out in the everyday mundane stuff of your life. 
Faithfulness is perseverance motivated by Jesus' perfect faithfulness to me. That's its motivation. Faithfulness is empowered not by my own strength, but by the Spirit of God within me. Listen, faithfulness flows from the admission of inability. Father, I cannot be faithful to you on my own. And even though I opted in as your son now, and I kind of want the things that you want, and I'm learning to desire the things that you desire, there is a part of my heart that does not want to be faithful. I need help. Faithfulness flows from admissions of inability. Faithfulness in hard seasons is fueled by looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's where it comes from. He he gives it to us. He sustains it. He finishes it. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, we tend towards fear, not faith. And in fear, we're all different, but some of you fight more and some of you flight more, right? Or let's say it this way. Some of you try to take control more and some of you tap out more. We'll use, we'll use it, we'll break it down that way. In fear, we tend to try to take control or we tend to try to tap out. In taking control, listen, Jesus did not call these Christians in Smyrna to a political revolution. He didn't say, guys, if you can just swing the voting block and and change the laws and be in the moral majority in the Roman Empire, persecution will go away. He He did not call them to a political revolution. He did not tell them to form a militia. Sorry, Texans. Oh, that's in Virginia right now. That's going on in Virginia. He didn't tell them to, or he did tell them rather to be faithful unto death. And what does that mean then? So rather than taking control as a follower of Jesus, it means I recognize that Jesus is in control. And rather than trusting myself and my own ability to control a situation or other people, I trust Jesus and I just live my life. That's what it means. That's what it means. I repent of trying to take control. I recognize that Jesus is sovereign. I trust him and I go to work. I just live my life. We also tend towards tapping out. But Jesus didn't call them to withdraw from society. You won't find a a command in scripture to build a convent, a cloister, a compound, or a co-op. We are called to recognize Jesus' sovereignty and to trust him and to press into uncertain circumstances and dangerous places, to trust him and to persevere. So faith in place of my fear, what does that sound like? What does that sound like on any given day? Uh, I just wrote some thoughts down for myself in terms of what it would say or what it would mean or sound like to articulate that to God. Jesus, I am afraid of fill in the blank. Now, since we're talking about persecution, let's just be honest. Most of us can't write in there, Jesus, I'm afraid of the persecution I'm experiencing right now. For most of us, to be honest, having grown up in Western Christianity, we are afraid of the potential of being mocked or ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus in a very professional environment. So let's write that in and be honest. Jesus, the fear of being mocked for being a follower of you is keeping my mouth closed in situations where it should be open. Like that'd be a more realistic confession. But I don't wanna be ruled by my fears. I wanna be ruled by you. You are my king. Jesus, this, this Okinawa is where you called me. This is where you placed me. You gave me orders here. Jesus, this is what you called me to. You made me a servant missionary in this unit, in this neighborhood. You are my king, so please strengthen my loyalty to you. You are sovereign, so strengthen my trust in you so that believing you are in control, I will resist the temptation to take control of my circumstances or the people around me. Strengthen my confidence in you so when I am tempted to run, I stand fast. And Jesus, I pray for my enemies. Show them the undeserved mercy just like, you should, just like you did for me. I think that's what it would sound like 
to articulate this tension between fear and faith to Jesus and ask for his help. And you're like, yeah, that's a nice, cute prayer, John. Great, thanks for that. But what does that actually look like in real life? Well, we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess. In fact, historically, there's an example. Do you know that the first time this letter was read to the church in Smyrna, there would have been a 25-year-old man by the name of Polycarp present for the reading of that letter? Polycarp just means many fish, I think. Poly, never mind. So Polycarp is there, and he's, he's listening, right? He's, 20, he's your age. He's your age, and he's listening to this letter. And Polycarp would go on to be discipled by the Apostle John personally. He would actually become a pastor in Smyrna. Like, this is Polycarp. Some of you will actually change career because you've heard the gospel and responded to it, and you step out of your military context, and you step into pastoring a church. Polycarp was martyred at the age of 86 for refusing to recant his faith in Jesus. When faced with extreme pressure to conform, and, and you're like, all right, John, like how extreme was the pressure that Polycarp faced? Well, when he was arrested, he was first threatened with, hey, recant or we're gonna feed you to these wild animals. And he's like, all right, bring them on. And so the authorities changed their mind. He said, well, recant or we're gonna burn you alive at the stake. And, and Polycarp said, light, light the match. And so he's faced with this pressure and here's what he said. Polycarp said, 86 years I have been his servant, and Jesus has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so history, history records that his guards prepared to nail him to the stake, but he told them calmly, leave me as I am, for the one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to remain at the stake unmoved without being secured by nails. And so they tied his hands together Polycarp offered a psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God, and then his captors ignited the wood, and he, he died there. Do you hear that statement that Polycarp made? The one who gives me strength to endure will give me strength to remain unmoved. There it is. Like that is, that is faith, not in myself, but in Jesus. It's the recognition that Jesus gives the strength to be faithful, and he sustains it, and that we, we run to him for this help. Guys, this is for us today. This is, this is what Jesus means when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like, this is for us. And so Jesus commends his family when facing extreme pressure to conform to the culture, they fearlessly and faithfully live out their gospel identity and purpose. So we need to ask ourselves the question, how will we grow to be this kind of church family? How, how, how will we be this kind of church? Guys, it's not gonna be in our own strength. It's not gonna be from reading books. It's not going to be from going to seminars. It's not going to be on our own. It won't be us individually getting stronger, and it won't be us getting stronger apart from God's help. Uh, did you know uh, before Polycarp died, he'd received a letter in his lifetime from a guy named Ignatius, another leader in the area. Ignatius was also martyred, and he had discipled Polycarp just as John had. And in Ignatius's letter to Polycarp, he says to this young man, he says, Polycarp, you're going to need to stand firm as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be the wounded and yet to conquer. But while this is happening to you, you need to look to him who in every kind of way suffered for our sakes. And don't just look to Jesus. You need to labor. So now he talks about the church. He says, you need to labor together with one another, strive in company together, run together, suffer together, sleep together, wake up together as the stewards and associates and servants of God live life together. Guys, that's how we will be faithful unto death, by looking to Jesus 
and living life together. We will conquer by looking to Jesus by faith and by choosing to live together as God's family for his fame, for each other's good, and for the good of those who are not yet adopted in. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us humble hearts this morning. Help us to receive this letter as if it was exactly written for us, because it is. We may not face a, a, a 10-day season of persecution, but, but Dad, you've told us if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will face persecution, and we want for that to be our desire. So Father, I pray that you would expose any areas of our lives where we are living more in conformity to the values of the culture around us and less in conformity to the values of your kingdom. We pray that you would strip those away. We pray that you would help us to gladly submit to Jesus as king. We pray that you would help us to learn how to live as his family of servant missionaries. And Father, when we're tempted to be afraid, we're tempted to take control or tap out, I pray, Father, that you would help us in those weak moments to see Jesus to receive strength and faith, and to persevere, to endure wherever it is that you have sent us. Help our hope not to be in the security of our circumstances or surrounding, but Father, help us to rest in confidence because, simply because Jesus is our kind and sovereign sending King. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.